Welcome to Chris Horner here. I'm really excited to talk to Chris. I met Chris briefly, I think, at a Heartland meeting back a long time ago, and I've read his book, Red Hot Lies, and enjoyed his Twitter feed, et cetera. But I'm very happy to have Chris here. And Chris, could you introduce yourself for the listeners? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tom. And Chris Horner. I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C. I have been for 30 years. And since 97, a lot of my work has been for policy groups on climate, which is something I just, just stumbled into by virtue of my employment at the time and was fascinated by it, was shocked and appalled by what I was learning. And it's a long drawn out story, but I like to ask, I like to ask you, how in the world did you get to be a global warming guy? Do the kids still say global warming? How did you oh. get to be a climate guy? The interstate climate change or Catherine Hayhoe says global weirding now. And that's not really catching on, I don't think. That's having a second life. Al Gore is the one who introduced global weirding. Oh, okay. Very long time ago. And I didn't think, oh, uh, we had some company a few days ago and they asked what's Gore up to. And I was struck me that maybe you can teach old dogs new tricks somewhat. He for decades, you know, dined out on, he was Churchill and everybody else was implicitly mm -hmm. wearing, let's just say brown. Haberdashery. <laughs> and he was, there was another man who saw a gathering storm. He would say, oh, yeah, that's right. Last week, I think he came out with now everybody else is the Uvalde police department. So he's doing a yeah. twist on that. I guess the old Godwin's law was catching up with him, but he decided to twist it. I just think it's a lot. They're trying to sell global weirding because when you look at the data, actually look at it, there's nothing weird happening in the data. Bad weather happens all the time, but um, it was really bad in the past. It's bad now, but it's no worse now. But think about it. It strikes people as making sense. Why else would we talk about the weather so much unless it was on any particular day notable? Other than, of course, the uncomfortable pause that you have nothing else to say other than up enough for you. But generally, this is, what do you talk about the weather? So it's always strange. I don't remember it being like this, but it was, and then it wasn't, and then it was again. I remember they were talking about this, or I read, a, they were talking about this in Thomas Jefferson's day. They talked about it in great detail about how the weather was different and why was it? And they were talking about maybe it's because we cut down so many trees, we're doing more farming in the U.S. And somehow we were changing the climate even then, but probably way before that, we were worried about it. But, oh, this has always been an excuse to blame your neighbors for any particular misfortune or to get what you want. Because well, the witch burnings were before. Yes. Thomas Jefferson, behind these trees, five, six months out of the year, I can see Monticello from where I'm sitting right here. Really? Notes on the state of Virginia and wrote about all sorts of climate change and how the rivers, which used to always freeze over, seldom do so now and so on. But he didn't blame anybody for it. He was uh, something like a meteorologist for his time, a straight meteorologist. He didn't see his fame and mm -hmm. fortune in that. He chose more productive avenues for his energies. Interesting. You mentioned that they burned 50,000 witches. That's the number I read. When the weather was bad back in the day and in an attempt to, I guess it worked and the weather got better after that. And uh, the Aztecs, wasn't the Aztecs, weren't they, when there were droughts and things, didn't they sacrifice, to try human sacrifice to, to make the crops grow better because of the drought? Something about that. If, my, if I recall correctly, that was one of several excuses for yeah. doing what they want to do. But that's a perfect segue into climate policy because you'll notice that everything that's demanded is pretty much what's been demanded in the name of everything. And is again, in the name of other things, like COVID or whatever, it just happens to be what we've always wanted. And it just, we get impatient or certain people do, and they move back to this, do what I want or everyone dies, shit, which is not a sign of a movement competent mm -hmm. in its argument or that it will withstand the test of time. It's, it reflects in my mind, a fear that what we've experienced 
will be experienced, that the sky will remain exactly where we left it for 30 years, even as they scream, it's falling, don't turn around, no time for details, sign here, details to follow. The witch burning thing, I don't think you can emphasize enough because it goes back to the first point, climate changes. That's why I don't like this, well, climate change is a hoax. Climate changes. Yes. Always yeah. has, yeah. always will. If it didn't, okay, that might be newsworthy. Film at 11. The wealthiest societies have always adapted best. Mm -hmm. Those that burned witches or SUVs adapted less well. That's how you deal with the changing climate. Alex Epstein of the moral case for fossil mm -hmm. fuels and so on makes great points. We haven't turned a safe climate and yeah. made it dangerous with high, reliable, affordable energy. We've turned a dangerous climate into a much safer climate. You can just look at the actual deaths from weather or depending on the weather, it's climate. It's yeah. People use it as a shorthand when they say climate change is a hoax. I see that on Twitter all the time, those exact words. And I know what they mean, but I w wish they wouldn't say it right. that way. They said catastrophic human caused climate change is a hoax. Then I'm with them. But right. yeah. The catastrophism. And it, it, look, instead of weirding, I'm surprised they're moving off of climate crisis because climate crisis has really worked its way into the lexicon. So I'm surprised they would try to rebrand. Yeah. That's great. But climate crisis has really, it's the shorthand. You see so many politicians, pressure group activists, media. It's the classic begging the question because at least in, you'll see it in the media all the time because the climate crisis, this, that, the other. But wait, can we get back to that crisis business? You're assuming yeah. it and everything else follows, but I, you can't establish that. That's why all the scare tactics, that's why all the, all of the tactics that should leave people to be like you, your story, which I read online, should lead people to be like you. Wait a minute. This smells fishy. You're trying to cancel anybody who disagrees with you and make sure others don't hear it. It's dangerous, those words. It's violence, those words. Wait a minute. Those words frighten you. I get it. Why? I'm going to look. Yeah. And maybe I should mention then how I did look into the climate change thing back in the day. So some other people have heard this story, but I started out in the bird watching world in 2005, there was a Iverbill woodpecker rediscovery that was announced. It was just a huge deal in the bird watching world. People got so worked up about it that when they heard that on public radio, they pulled off on the side of the road and they wept with joy because it was so great. Cause it was a big, it was a huge rediscovery, but, uh, I checked into that and a bunch of other bird watchers checked into it. And it was amazing how flimsy that evidence was. Even though they had 17 authors on a peer-reviewed paper, it was officially, it was supposed to be truth, but uh, it wasn't because all they had is some uh, flimsy sightings and they heard some sounds in the woods. And one of their pieces of evidence was a ivory-billed woodpecker photo that was six pixels. Totally. <laughs> they blew it up and they had six black and white pixels in the right pattern. That was supposed to be an ivory-billed woodpecker. I think it's mind blowing that modern day people thought six pixels was enough to establish that the woodpecker was there. Now, as I've said before, the Bigfoot Zapruder film is way more convincing. And as I've said before, if we took a picture in the back of either one of our offices and blew it up, you can find six pixel patterns that are just as good as they had in the woods. And they had the woodpecker on one tree. And even in that same photo, I could find a couple other woodpeckers on other trees if you blew up. The uh, picture, you could find those six pixels. So anyway, it was just an example of how flimsy the evidence was. And I had a blog about that. And I rebuilt the uh, New York Times ended up writing a Jack hit. I'm sorry, of the New York Times wrote a book called A Bunch of Amateurs. And one of his chapters was about how amateurs could tear apart the Ivory Bill Woodpecker rediscovery and how my blog was a central area where that was done. So that was satisfying. But then a meteorologist wrote to me and said, there's tons of parallels between this controversy and the global warming controversy. And that's the first I had heard of that. 
because I was just thinking experts must know what they're talking about and the earth must be warming and we must decause. Once meteorologists told me to look into the evidence for myself, I did. And instantly, as I looked into it, I found out that same deal, totally flimsy evidence. If you look at it for yourself, you can see, find out that the experts are, don't really know what they're talking about. I've been off on this global warming debunking for many years since then. I, it's Steve McIntyre and a lot of others like him, anyone who's dealt in mining or prospectuses, their spidey senses go up when they see a hockey stick. Yes. Mine go up similarly when I hear we must act now. We must act now. I had encountered it on Capitol Hill in the early 90s and I was, I'm trying to recall the conversation because uh, getting up there now, but it was, uh, it was along the lines of this was on the, it was on the heels of some that had been over the head. There was some panic and it was a, we must act now. And I'm sorry, my memory is failing me, but I had been working in the pesticides and uh, fungicides and so on area on some legislation on the Hill. And there was a big, we must act now. And it was Alar. I think it was right on the heels of oh, Alar. Okay. I remember that. And we must act now. And 60 minutes did it. We must act now. And on Monday morning, parents were chasing after the school bus to get the apple out of Johnny's. I lunch. remember that. Yes. Okay. And then I was just. And we were dealing with a, we must act now on the heels of it. And it was like, let's, cause the time's not our friend on this one. That's, and so when I started hearing, I wasn't working on climate. I was, as I like to say, innocently practicing law in DC. <laughs> and then I went in house for, as a non-lawyer for a company, which was everybody's fa favorite energy company at the time, the uh, governor of Texas, where they were headquartered, had a nickname for Kenny boy, the CEO, and they were Bill and Al's favorite energy company. They were supposedly free market pioneers, but in fact, they were political capitalists, political, they were very opportunistic. Obviously the company was Enron and I went in house as director of federal government relations in, I forget, May of 97. Okay. By June 97, I was a sole practitioner because it was essentially a no interview job offer and I hadn't really gotten around to their business model, which was, it was varied, but they're, they'd stake their big bet on something I actually hadn't understood. Okay. I was a fully grown man, but I didn't understand rent seeking mm -hmm. and a Baptist and bootleggers and they combined them both. So this was, if you've got, I guess the easy one is windmills, but let's say guardrails. You think uh, you make guardrails or mm -hmm. you galvanize. And so you work with lawmakers to make sure that every road in the name of Rhymes with children. <laughs> There's a public safety interest in the name of the children. We need to make sure that every road is covered entirely with guardrails, three layers deep, so on. That would be rent seeking. And that was Enron's game, but with windmills and gas, <laughs> the world's biggest gas pipeline outside of Gazprom. And okay. they had just bought the world's largest wind company, Zond Wind, Enron, and now GE Wind. Okay. And they bought it on the cheap because it's not economic. Yes. And Ken Lay was very good at working with friends in government to add value to things he bought. And his idea was to add value to his gas pipe space on which would be even more valuable. Okay. And his windows make people buy my stuff also should be a red flag when they come head in hand yes. to the White House and say, as they just did again last week with man, yes. yeah. unless you make people buy my stuff or give me a preference yeah. or go after my competition or give me this bag of money, why I won't exist. And unfortunately, the answer from the politicians is never, then don't exist. It's because when that bag of money, that preference, the coercion, or the going after kneecapping your opposition ends, you're going to be back here saying, okay, even when they do this, but I'm an infant industry, like when I was just commercialized in the eighties. 
It was the 1880s, but I just came online in the 80s. You got to help me out. I've been living in the taxpayer's basement since the 70s. But yeah, unless you do this, I won't exist. Does anybody at this point get offended when they then say, isn't it time we began investing in? Give me all those bags of money back. And then we can play your game about, isn't it time we began investing it? So that was Enron's game. Rent seeking. BP had the solar panels. They had hired a PR firm to turn them into a starburst, sunburst company uh-huh. beyond petroleum. Okay. And if you look at the annual report, no, not the petroleum. Okay. But there was, it was a Baptist and bootleggers group. And I found myself in a meeting room of a law firm that's now bankrupt with a who's who, Union of Concerned Scientists and all of them. In the spring of 97, discussing how to get the U.S. involved in a global warming treaty. And I'm seated next to a guy from an industry trade association, and I leaned over asking what we were doing with people who so quite clearly are committed to putting you out of business, trying to play this game. After all, they couldn't be thinking, oh, they'd never go all the way. Politicians are adults. They're controlling. Dogs don't slip leashes. And then he smiled. Yeah, I know. It was about how to get the Paris Treaty. Okay. Again, I raised some questions. My boss really didn't like that. And I was soon gone. But very soon thereafter, Sir John Brown from BP and Kenny Boyd okay. had a meeting in the Oval Office with the president and the vice president. And the Senate had just unanimously voted to instruct the White House, since the White House didn't ask for advice or consent, the Senate volunteered it unanimously and said, don't go to Kyoto and agree to anything like this. And then Bill and Al met with John and Ken, and they said, yeah, Article 2, Section 2, that musty old document. Enron and BP are in the Constitution, too, somewhere in the back with all the scary stuff. And we think you really are. And the memos briefing Ken Lay for that Oval Office meeting are available online, and you can read it. And it's a June meeting, and they're saying, here's what you got to tell them. I think it's June. No, it was August. I'm sorry, because the July vote on Bert Hagel saying, don't go do this. Enron was my eye-opening experience. And I soon began working with CEI, which is a classical liberal think tank. And I started doing open records requests instigated by that. Okay. You know, let's take a look at the junkets and what Enron was, how did Enron get so close and what were they getting for this close relationship with the politicians? What about their other, the other the Baptists and the bootleggers. And so it just led to a FOIA practice, Freedom of Information Act, that see, and that, that just kept expanding because so it was government, so you got to keep looking. Okay. And so over the years, we had some important revelations, the false identity of the EPA administrator, Richard Windsor, who was really Lisa Jackson. I'd like to hear a lot more about that, if you can talk about it, or maybe... Yeah, yeah, have to. if you can, I'd like to hear that story. Yeah. I wrote a book, one of the ones behind me. So I started writing books okay. in 2000, pardon me, I think, Five. Okay. May have been seven, I'm sorry. And the politically incorrect guide to global warming. And then after that was Red Hot Lies, which remains my favorite. Very Yes, I love it's it. A lot. It's, it's, that's, a ve- that's a very fun book, in my opinion, every time. It's still good. A lot of fun. And I thank Mark Morano every time I see him because he was working up on the Hill at the uh-huh. time, sending out these daily compilations. And I would spend from nine to noon every day. Uh-huh. Going through all these things Mark was circulating, he's invaluable. He remains invaluable. But at the time, he was really helping me pull together. And it just, it became a book of, look at 
from the totalitarian impulse? What do they need to make sure that no one hears the other side to what it is they're really asking for, how the IPCC works, harmonizing the underlying work with the summary that was written with Greenpeace and so mm -hmm. on. Wait, what? Don't you have that back then? And uh, it moved on to, I wrote a book, Power Grab, and then The Liberal War on Transparency, which was a FOIA book. And when that got reviewed in the Washington Times, someone from EPA contacted me and said, the administrator's handle is Richard Winch, and you ought to check that out. And we did. And it turns out, so if Barbara Boxer, if you recall, Barbara Boxer, she had a hearing to try to defend against this. And she goes, everybody does it. She didn't oh. name one person who does it. It's usually the case when they say everybody does it. Yeah. She said, Christine Todd Whitman's email behind her name, she was George W. Bush's you know, limousine Republican, EPA, horse mm -hmm. yeah. country, New Jersey, coming to relate the common man's concern to overregulation. And it said behind her name, to T.O. Whit, which was her nickname. Hey, Whit. Okay. But that was behind her name. That was what's called the alias in yes. tech terms, I learned. Mm -hmm. Whit. But it said Christine Todd Whitman. Right, it didn't right. say some dude you never heard of. And at the bottom, it said, Christine Todd Whitman, administrator, US EPA. Richard Windsor didn't have a tag. And in fact, we have emails of somebody saying, Mr. Windsor, could you put me in contact with Lisa Jackson, et cetera? <laughs> and we had a lobbyist, I think it was Siemens, writing her at Richard Windsor. It was her fake, it was a false identity, which is yeah. you're not a no no. And federal records have to identify the parties. You can't say, I'm Charles III yeah. <laughs> or the so, Lord Richard. So the reason for that was to avoid a FOIA? A disclosure or what other reason is there for that? So why would you do this? Why would you say you've heard, what is your blank name? What is your adult film name or something? And it's that your pet's name in the street you grew up on. That was her. She said, yes. my dog's name was Richard and the street she grew up on or she was in Windsor, New Jersey. So that's how she said she came about. But why? That's the question. Yeah. What's the point? We can't perform brain surgery on Lisa Jackson, but... We do know how would it play out? What does it do? We know unless there's a big posted pad on the wall, the FOIA office at EPA, any request for Lisa Jackson email, you have to search Richard.Windsor. Yes. Yeah. I'm speculating, but I don't think there was. They never claimed that yes, the FOIA office knew. And we got, I think 120,000 records when we asked for all the Richard Windsor correspondence, including with industry where she's saying, here, don't contact me here. Contact me at my, my uh, Verizon. Okay. And that too is a no, no. So. Yeah. It's a gateway drug. And maybe you're the other Blackberry, it was a Verizon Blackberry she carried. That was the gateway drug. She ended up also with a false identity used among colleagues. And it was, I'm willing to say the purpose. I know the outcome was to frustrate congressional oversight, FOIA, any sort of transparency or oversight. And so that's the only thing we know that definitely would have flowed from an administrator adopting a, remember, this is not an alternative that secondary. They typically have the public facing one and okay. another colleagues use. Okay. This is a false identity. Yes. Richard Windsor was not a person at EPA. And the sole reasonable conclusion for this was to mislead, to avoid scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So that was a problem. And that was, and that got attention. And it turned out the Associated Press, to their credit, took a look and found that a bunch of these folks were doing it. Okay. Um, it, so Barbara Boxer could have named that other people, oh. but she misled. She said other people use aliases and an alias will be what's behind your email. It may yeah. show 
Tom Nelson, yep. but it'll be Zoom King one. Yep. <laughs> and we had a lot of that. We've, we found that the Obama administration then wrote their clean power plan that the Supreme Court just at long last drove a stake in yes. on somebody's Yahoo account. And he gave the pen, in essence, this lawyer at EPA gave the pen to green groups at his Yahoo account. And we went to the same law school. I'm speculating because he's a lawyer. When he left, he looked at the departure form and he saw, I swear, I'm not taking anything with me. No records. And you can't have the entire blueprint for the clean power plan and how you let the Greens write it on your Yahoo account. When the law says if you're stuck on a desert island and you only have access to at least Jackson's Verizon or your Yahoo, you can use it, but you have to then forward copies of all of it. So on his way out, he dumped an enormous history of the clean power plan into the EPA system. Okay. And we got that and presented it to the DC circuit in an amicus brief. So I found those very productive. They were instructive whether or not you, and many people clearly disagreed that it was proper for the public to use open records laws to potentially frustrate, but anyway, educate the public on how these institutions are being used. If those institutions are being used in a way that the journalistic class likes. Okay. I know a particular reporter with a particular New York daily newspaper who told a colleague of mine that I was just as bad as I forget somebody was stealing things. Because by using FOIA to expose the Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg planting lawyers and state attorneys general. Okay. Because he really liked what they were doing. But, but again, if there's this sense that FOIA was written by them, the Washington post wrote an editorial on May day of sometime in the nineties, I think about me, because I was involved in litigation, trying to get climate gate records from the university of Virginia. Now you have to understand the public service involved here. Climate gate happens. Oh, that's out of context. It's thoroughly misrepresenting it. Okay. We would like to see the context. No, anyway, there's a law that says we can see it. And when we pressed that, the Washington Post wrote an editorial saying, and you should see the title of his books. He wants to access public records. I don't think so. They actually said, look at these book titles. Now, this is not the right kind of person to access public records. And a university we recently beat in court this spring also tried that. Bad people. These are the wrong kind of people to see public records. There's absolutely no indication that there's a good person test or worldview test in these laws. It was about good governance, but apparently good governance means it's do what I want or everyone dies. Governance means letting me do what I want. And if you start looking, well, we're going to have to come out after you. And that they do. So are there a lot of other people that you know of that are using FOIA? You are the FOIA king, right? <laughs> Aren't you? Or... Politico said master of FOIA. Yeah, uh, there you go. I thought it was a stretch. It was, there were some people, but just generally it was the whole world seemed to agree. Yeah, well, that's theirs, isn't it? No, I don't. I happen to think this particular emperor start raving naked. This law doesn't say it's just from you. I want to use this law to find out if that's the case here. There are judicial watch uses it very effectively. We at CEI started using it on energy, environment, climate issues. And I suppose we were, Mark Levin's group, Landmark Legal had some great cases, but this is, it's strange. We've had groups that were quite clearly copycats created because of our successes. Okay. Which struck me as odd because 
we were simply engaging in the most sincere form of flattery. We were doing exactly what they were doing. In fact, mm. harassing scientists was the Washington Post's editorial about, did you read his books? No, you, no. Nobody who writes a book with that title can get access to mm -hmm. it. The harassing scientists was a FOIA to the University of Virginia. And all we did was take Greenpeace's FOIAs of Pat Michaels and Fred Singers and said, I'll have she's had. Okay. But these other guys. And suddenly this was, it was a threat to the Republic and that's harassment. I don't want to do the too cold, but uh, I'm just, I thought you had a really good idea there. And I thought it should apply to the gander as well. And it was strange. And we pointed this out I, in correspondence, I told you about this declaration we filed in our, in, in a client of mine, government accountability and oversights lawsuit against UCLA. Their law school, like several others, are involved in this climate litigation industry, and they're providing boiler rooms for the tort industry. Okay. Donor provided boiler rooms at institutions, and this generally Columbia, Chicago, Harvard, and LA. Okay. Okay. I paid for this microphone. I'd like to see how this institution is being used. It's a public university. And we pointed out in my declaration, they're doing the bad person defense again. Okay. And they do it particularly at universities. It's when there's this unique flip out. Okay. Even though the entire practice of seeking public information from universities was cribbed from Greenpeace doing it at UVA. Okay. With Pat yeah. Michaels and Princeton. Okay. Sounds like a good idea. And we pointed out, we're, look, we're simply doing what by their actions they had sanctioned all along. They thought this was a great idea. They thought it was in the public interest. They thought the law read as it read. And tell people they didn't use it. To me, that's a big tell. We tell like, which time are you sincere? Which time are you telling the truth? This is what it means or it does. And the, the climate thing is it just infected with that good person, bad person thing. Ad hominem is, is like the first and last resort, the bottom of the hierarchy of arguments, but it's the first right. refuge right. of a climate activist. And uh, that's. One of these big tells. I got to shut you up. And did I mention he's a bad person? Oh, have you had a lot of trouble with people completely ignoring the FOIA requests and you have to submit them over and over or, or deleting the emails once they see that you have put in the FOIA request? Like that was in the ClimateGate emails. A FOIA request comes in and then their internal emails show them talking about deleting the stuff that the right. people wanted. Yeah. Is that a big problem, do you think? And that was, I do think it's a big problem. And what we've found lately is they can ignore them. That's fine. Yeah. But we tend to sue on the first day. Oh, okay. They, at the federal level, you have, let's say 20 working days or 30 days. You can almost count on a suit the day after because the requirements aren't that robust for an answer, but it took until just a very few years ago for the DC circuit to rule. So by a response, we don't in fact mean, or Congress didn't mean somebody mm. will get to you at some point in the future with something that actually passed for a response. Your honor, I responded. Here's a letter. I said, at some point, yeah. somebody responded with saying something. Okay. And the DC circuit cleared its judicial throat and said, look, this is mm -hmm. it again. These agencies are using these laws as withholding statutes. We've had a FOIA since the forties. And then in the early seventies, this, it was in the administrative procedure act. You could have access to government records. There's a common law of access. We have one suit for those. 
undergoing now. But Congress saw that the bureaucrats were using, well, I don't have to release it because that. Yeah. If you turn this way, hold it up to the light, it says I don't have. So you're using it the wrong way. It's a disclosure statute. These are public unless, and they're saying, oh, I don't have to release it because of this reason. So then we adopted FOIA and they're doing it again. So some agencies were notoriously timely, including under the previous administration. Let's, I'll, I'll raise an issue, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Okay. They were pretty serious about by the 14th day, you got to have everything into us because we need to get it out in a week. Oh, okay. That changed suddenly around January of uh, last year. Okay. And they, as did FERC, FERC became a global warming agency. Okay. So did Health and Human Services, the Office of Control of the Currency, as there's a yeah. whole of government approach to yes. yeah. doing what Congress has not said do. This student body, everything, everybody do it and let's see what we get away with. So some agencies are notoriously derelict. Some used to be good and they've become derelict. In the end, they've all decided you have to sit. That's really why, and you can sympathize with it, judges generally don't like that law okay, because agencies don't comply with it. So requesters sue. With that said, bureaucrats are adaptable. So are political appointees. So Richard Windsor was one thing and there was Gmail and Yahoo. And then the law was quite clear. Just because you use a private account doesn't make email private, make it any less public. If it's work-related, it's work-related. Okay. You can send smoke signals. I don't know how we're going to capture them, but it's yeah. still a work-related, if, if it's a, to the extent smoke signals a record. Uh -huh. And they do something like smoke signals now. Okay. They're using Signal and WhatsApp. Oh, okay. And claiming they don't have anything because they're disappearing their messages, which is a violation of several laws. Okay, but they're regular text messages now. You can send a FOIA and get those if it's about the official EPA business. So. I just had the White House claim through the Department of Justice last week, two weeks ago, about the Securities and Exchange Commission's big climate risk disclosure. They're going to, anybody they don't like, they're trying to compel confessions in their annual reporting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm killing the planet and therefore nobody should lend to me is the bottom line. That's not your an annual form. And, uh, and so on behalf of a couple of clients, we have requests for records like that from FERC, SEC, and so on. And it turns out SEC officials use signal. There's just okay. this violation, once again, in violation of the laws of probabilities, like all the climate scandals and so on, in violation of the laws of probabilities, for some reason, political appointees at FERC all just downloaded the Signal app. I'm sorry, WhatsApp at FERC and Signal SEC. It's just one of these things. It's just, okay. they just sense it. And they don't text each other about it. Okay. They just all happen to have Signal at FERC, Signal at SEC, WhatsApp at FERC, and then it goes on. White House, climate advisors like Signal. Okay. It's not that hard to find some things out. Yeah. And it's perfectly fine to download that, but you have to. What's the point of an encrypted app that you're not sending to the offices the law requires. It's what's the point of Richard Windsor. Right. But the law is clear and the law has caught up. The theory remains the same. When Mitt Romney was found as governor to have used a private email account, nobody doubted that those were state records. I don't, I'm trying to figure out what page. Okay. Okay. So text messages two weeks ago, as I was saying, the SEC through the DOJ told us, yes, we have 10, 10 text messages between our commissioner, 
a committee, the chairman, and either these three White House climate officials or Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. Okay. We have 10, but they're all, we're copping to 10, but they're all privileged in full. In full? In full. So the name? Yeah. The date? Yeah, that too. <laughs> every day, every, the colon between. <laughs> But no, it isn't. It is. Okay. This is a yeah. stolen tactic. Okay. And then we had 184. You said, what do they do? What do they do? I'm telling you, they use Signal, they use Gmail, they use Got, they use WhatsApp, they use Twitter DMs. They set up groups on Twitter. Uh, Our job is to constantly find them because again, these are the public's records. They reflect the transaction of the public's business. For the most part, the media don't care because as we've seen in text messages, the media are texting them and so on. Because they're doing their hearts in the right place and so on. You that benefit of the doubt that's very yeah. dominant in the climate. Like whatever you say is probably true because I agree with you and mm -hmm. you're, you're bad people. So they said, we found they're using teams chats in this administration as full alternative to email because .gov emails are too obvious and Gmails, they have to attest. They all know the separation form says I'm not leaving with anything. So. Maybe I'll set up signal and disappear the messages, hmm. or maybe I'll use teams chats because until very recently, nobody thought of asking for that. Okay. Microsoft teams meeting. I don't know if the zoom equivalent, let's say they use Microsoft teams. Okay. And there's a chat function and you don't have to be in a team's meeting hmm. to use it as email. Okay. So this administration and the white house are using teams chats hmm. to write down things that Apparently don't want us to see in the emails. Maybe it's just, they find it easier, but the problem is in the same response from DOJ, they said, we have 184 teams messages between the chairman or his general counsel in the white house. This is a committee. This is the independent agency. This is a commission. Okay. And, and those two are privileged in full. Now I have a bunch of the EPA. Air chief in waiting, Joe Goffman's team's messages we got in litigation. I don't know what they look like. They look like emails. Right. They're not actually privileged in full. Again, the name. It's from Janet Yellen to Gina McCarthy. Okay. And it was on this date at this hour. And the subject was this meeting. But they claim even the name, even the date, the subject, and of course, every jot and tittle of yes. is privileged. Okay. Clearly, no, it's not. What we've got here is they're playing a game of cat and mouse, and then they're stalling because either in part, because we're onto them again, just be straightforward with this. Use regular channels, understand the law says, if you accept this job, you're to create a record. There are reasons, there are FOIA reasons, federal records act reasons, the national archives and records administration, posterity reasons, it all gets shipped. Okay. The things that get taken out as transitory and they're engaging in all these games with different technology, like the false identity, I suggest, because it makes it more difficult and takes much longer to use, to educate the public. This is how your institution is being used. That's the point of this. It's the point of what Greenpeace was up to. I'm sure they had a, a longer game ball, but that's, mm -hmm. here's how the university of Virginia is being used. We think Pat Michaels is a really bad guy and the mm -hmm. public. And we're going to try to, okay, we want to see Michael Mayans. Well, that's different. I don't see how it's different. And they've yet after 
20 years, they've yet to make a compelling argument how it's different, except that we're bad people. So that's the point of all this. The Supreme Court, I think in its first FOIA case, the public has a right to know what its government is up to. That's true. It's codified. It's well-established. It's part of the deal. When you take that job, that's the deal. Not everybody agrees with it or likes it. You said back in the Richard Windsor days, the Associated Press was on board with digging into this a little bit. Was that the good old days in the mainstream media or nowadays? Aren't they as willing to dig into that stuff or anything against the global warming narrative at all? I'm not seeing it myself. I think that this was, my take is, it was just irresistible. That was a great story. You've got this administrator. It's so transparently, if I may say so, obvious what you're up to. A false identity, a complimenty, that's, that's commitment. And so the AP said, I'd like to find out if anybody else is doing this. And I think it was Kathleen Sebelius, the Ag Secretary, Tom Vilsack had something going on that they wouldn't let on to. I don't know if it was a false identity and or private. And AP found that several were doing this because it was just, it, look, that's an irresistible story. It's front page, Pulitzer's raining from the sky story type stuff when it's Trump or Republican. Yes. Yeah. But this was irresistible. At root, some of the journalists actually are journalists. And that's a really good story. Journalists use FOIA. You'd never know it the way they come after people they don't like, but journalists use FOIA. They think it's right and good. But again, it was by them for them. And that's not actually the law. So if an ordinary person like me used FOIA and they ignored me, wouldn't I just be out of luck or I'd have to go to a lawyer to go to the next step and sue him? Or how does that work? So in the liberal war transparency, the beautiful blue book that okay. uh, it's a how-to manual oh, okay. and the answer is probably, but you need to yeah. Okay. And I'll say this, I for years believed and tried to put this in practice and still do now that every policy group should have a FOIA person because you're dealing with policy and people who formulate it are using an institution and your resources to do it. It's not that it's not their chair they're sitting on. It's yours. It's not their computer, mm-hmm. often their second blackboard. <laughs> but anyway, it's public work is public records. Every group should have a FOIA person and every group should have access to somebody who's willing to press matters to the best of their ability as many as they can. Because again, we have an enormous government, right? An enormously expensive government whose it's views itself, I think, as a shark. It's got to keep swimming or dying, eating. It's an eating machine. Need more resources, do more stuff. I've noticed the problems are never declared solved. That might not be good for the agency's health, but policy groups of all people should definitely be active in this. Some of the best FOIA law at the state level came from parents at school board meetings 12 years ago, okay, day, day before Loudoun County. And it would be, they could see these, they could see the school board emailing each other during the meetings and it was AONL and they got them. Oh, okay. Because again, turning to a private resource to do public business doesn't make the business any less public. So you make your request, just take a look at be as specific as you can. I'm not a fan of the, all documents relating to, pertaining to, even referencing. Don't give anybody any room for mischief. Be latitudinal and longitudinal as you can. Be specific, date, time, email, domain, whatever, and appeal on, if you're not going to sue right away, if you're not sure, file an administrative appeal because if you know how this process works, and I talked to a few people 
during writing that book, the FOIA book, about how their process worked. And some administrations are just much more politicized than others. And I'll give you an example. And then some, the way the bureaucracy works, the incentive is to not be the one who lets something out that shouldn't have gone out. So you just take a paint roller and you over withhold because you're not going to be the one stuck in a windowless office without a phone because you let out Richard Winter or you found out about it. Okay. And then you let the appellate officer say, no, that's not it. So you, you do need to repeal. Okay. Sue right away. What we found during Obama was the general counsels of many agencies would have a Monday meeting and a Friday meeting, and they wanted to know everything that had come in and everything that the parties in the FOIA world thought they were sending out that week, and they would run it through the politicals. Okay. That's being done on a promiscuous level right now with Biden, and they're calling it White House equities. That. And not, I don't want to get too weedy. I probably already have. That's, this came from a memo Obama's counsel, Gregory Craig, wrote to re-engineer this idea that the White House has an interest in anything you release. That's our equity in this. Okay. You will get an excuse from federal agencies. The White House has equities in these. So, hey, we, and they just told, the SEC just told the court, hey, I don't control the White House, Your Honor. They're really important people. So I'd like to help. What's in the White House? <laughs> Let me mention that's the White House. The president lives. <laughs> That's not actually in the law. It's not an exemption. It's not an excuse. It's being used as an excuse to keep things from you. And we expect to try that in a couple of these cases I've mentioned, because it's being used as a way to, at bare minimum, delay. But you either think it's exempt. I didn't ask them. I asked you for that thing sitting on your computer. I actually paid for it. I want to see that. I asked for yours. And you're saying, I got to check with the boss, depending upon the case. You're an independent commission. I want to know why you've got 184 teams messages that you say show the development of an independent agency's policy with the White House. Is that okay? I, I don't know. There, there used to be some distinctions there. Anyway, I want you to come out and say it. The White House is writing my global warming policy, even though I'm the independent commission. This is important at least to get an answer, to get it from them. Again, how are these institutions being used? We can guess toward what end. What are they saying about toward end? With whom are they being used? And far too often, unfortunately, at whose behest? We do see real public-private partnerships. I just saw a tranche of John Kerry State Department emails. Yeah. They work extremely closely with the green groups. And the public should know about them. It's like with the Bloomberg, I don't know how well read into this anybody watching is, but Michael Bloomberg paid for lawyers to hire them through a group to put in attorney, progressive attorneys general's offices, many of whom he had cultivated by selecting them from primaries as his anointed one. And then, hey, Brian, I've got, a, I've got an ask for you. And he'll plant special prosecutors in their office. And this program is reporting back to Bloomberg. But this is the prosecutor's office. In both of these cases, I just asked, if you're not sure if that stinks, let's just run a quick counterfactual. Did you know Charles Koch put a bunch of, no, the National, the American Petroleum Institute and the NRA hide the children, maybe a right to life group, put special prosecutors uh -huh. in the attorney general's office to investigate abortion providers. Still cool with that? <laughs> you're not? Can you walk me through what?
because you're perfectly fine because what climate Bloomberg, that's not really an explanation. So the same thing here, if you think it's okay. And I know they don't all of the folks who are letting this go by are not okay. If the other guy does it, that's always a good, pull the mirror up, the good pressure test. Should you, if you're a journalist, do you really need to spend all your time on your hit pieces when there's real stories that you would be all over, like white on right, if were the other guy, would you consider it? I admit no prospect of Pulitzer's, but it's journalism. Very interesting. I have two questions about the FOIA. Do you think that there's much going on in terms of communications between the White House and big tech in terms of censoring social media? That's one of them. The other question is about ballot images in general from the 2020 election. Is that a thing that people can uh, submit FOIA requests to get the actual ballot images everywhere from elections to see? They're supposed to be kept for 22 months. I don't know if that's something you've checked into. I'd like to see both of those myself. I know nothing about the latter. Okay. But if something's supposed to be kept for a specified period of time, yeah, be kept for a reason. What is the reason? Okay. Is it a public record? I have to admit, I don't know, but I just operate on the presumption with any public agency. It is a public record unless you used it to spread. You sent people out a notice about a diagnosis or some yes. loathsome yeah. disease was an example used in the case. Okay. That's, we get it. Not everything on the system is public, but there's a presumption. The first question is a fascinating one. And it, it's a troubling one because this whole censorship, canceling, everybody knows what it is now. Yeah. There's an awful, awfully big investment in censoring in the past few years. Who was the subject of this made mention of it to me once in a conversation. They were getting canceled all over. There was a goon squad chasing everything they did to just make people think it's not worth it. I'm not going to run Steve Coonan's pieces, Bjorn Lomborg's pieces, Michael Schellenberger's pieces. It's just, I've got this noise machine chasing me. I won't. That's one. Okay. That's like soft, that's informal censorship, but creation of the noise machine is a deliberate act. And I'll give you, I'll get to the government in a moment, but it began in, in when I chased that lead down, you'll notice that uh, like climate feedback, it's Facebook's independent fact checker. Yeah. Pause, wait, but <laughs> So climate feedback hmm. gets messages from Facebook when something goes insanely viral. This is from an email we got. Oh, okay. John Stossel's video. Think for Prager you. Anything Richard Lindzen does, anything Schellenberger did, Steve Conan, there was climate feedback. Facebook asked their independent fact checker to go after it. It's not an independent fact checker. And it's an it's clearly advocacy less than fact checking, but I think we've learned that over the years. That's generally fact checking is. And a lot of the climate feedback workforce are public servants. So again. You're paying for an institution who's using a position at University of Colorado Boulder, UCL, Lawrence Livermore, to participate in this. They're using resources you gave them to do this. All right. So I want to see how this comes about. How are these institutions being used? With whom, towards the et cetera, how? And so climate feedback is a great example. This was something set up to censor a few problematic people. And we saw that Facebook would contact 
climate feedback and say, this went insanely viral. Could you get on? Okay. And John Stossel filed suit because he, over this, he got oh. canceled over this. His video was, got some, if you've been exposed to this, please call the poison control number. <laughs> and in fact, at the bottom of the email, they say, thank you for your participation. Facebook members who were exposed to this have received a notice. It's the creepiest. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You can find, I think some of these are up at govoversight.org. You can say Facebook six fact checker. That's this. And it, you'll see some of these. And it says, we've notified anybody who may have come in contact with this long thing. <laughs> wow. It's just outstanding. Yeah. So there is a group that Tom Steyer initiated that's operating out of a private university, forgetting their name right now. It's not Next Gen. Is that it? Next Gen? Is uh, it was a Steyer. I think it was his. Yeah. It was like uh, Energy Foundation. Oh. And they gave a bunch of money to Brown University to run a group whose name's escaping me. But what they do is they pay academics thirty dollars to $60,000 for a paper. This canceling operation is, in my opinion, it has every appearance of being an effort to do opposition research with the patina of a chin-stroking academic thought piece. It'll be a peer-reviewed article. Okay with an octopus chart showing Charles Koch connected all the people they don't. <laughs> that's the operation. Okay. That's another one of these sort of, that's a way to, to cancel people. The other one is obviously censorship. And then we find the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. They had a meeting, a public forum where they brought usual suspect, Naomi Oreskes and folks that the House brings up to testify, then they, to have a panel, a scientific panel. What's wrong with these people? What do we need to do to get around the fact that a lot of people aren't buying what we're selling, that they've noticed the sky remains exactly where we left it. And it was a, it was, this office has been, as it was with John Holdren, quite an environmentalist activist. If there was one, no, I'm just spitballing here about sterilizing the population through the water supply. <laughs> I've just thrown it out there for discussion. I never promoted it. I'm just saying, let, let's talk about it. He was talking about an ice-free Arctic in winter, he said. I don't know if you remember that, but yeah. Someone might check. He said a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. And OSTP has returned to those roots. It's got, this is an interesting one. Jane Lubchenco is the deputy director. The director got chased out because he was mean to people. And I think he was the one who's trying to bring in Google hired Google people. Okay. To help him. Google was going to place employees, but they would run it through a C3. Okay. And it, this, we got some pickup and he decided to spend more time with his family and so on. And they've got Jane Lubchenco was the deputy. Well, she was, she worked at NOAA under Barack Obama and was still using her Oregon state email address for NOAA work. And so parties have asked for emails about this. We have an event like this and they use some silly phrase. Like it's as, it's as devastating as it is dangerous or pernicious as it is something else, a lot of alliteration from anxious advocates and just sort of name calling, chin stroking about what's wrong with these people. We need to assess their, what psychological condition would lead to them opposing what we want to do. And that's, that was a sign of, okay, your office is, <laughs> you may have lost the plot. Again, you're the office of science and technology policy, but I know everything you want is, so you're the party of science. 
So everything you want to science. And they were bringing in Google people to do it too. So censorship's a really big deal with these folks. And that should come as a surprise to nobody who's paid attention to climate. I, I like to think, and I've corresponded with you for probably 20 years on and off and known of you and known you in one way or another. You've been in this for a long time. I have, yeah. And you know that we were the subjects of this cancel culture way before it was cool. I used to speak on campuses quite a bit. And I still remember when they, I can think of anecdotes, which would be every single event now, but there were some events. Sometimes they were respectful. Sometimes they were clever and they'd cough throughout. They all, uh, really? sometimes the SDS chapter would show up and they'd try to burn stuff. And central Florida, I remember they were, they were pretty feisty. The best thing is, I think it was the college Republicans or seat factor, whoever hosted me had guys out in the hall because there'd been an unpleasant scene the week before burning something down because it saluted. And so they had folks out in the hallway and the SDS folks would run out and say, he's making good points. What should we do? (laughs) And then then they'd come on, they'd say, you're an effing blank hole. That's really tame stuff now. Okay. But this was. I still remember because I'm thinking they were in the outliers. They would oh, okay. shout you down, sometimes run up and try to put a USB drive in your computer. Always insist, why isn't Greenpeace up here with you? Okay. But they always share their stage with us. So that wasn't I. We get opportunities all the time. What I thought was these are, these kids are pretty fired up is now a really tame day. But still, I think we were, we got this cancel thing early and often, but I guess what I'm saying is what we don't deserve any particular credit. We were getting it, but we saw it coming, but it's obviously many more people are getting it much, much worse now. It's, this was a canary in the coal mine. The way they treated dissenters on the climate agenda, who came to the issue like you did. That's a, re- now, shouldn't you listen to this guy who came to the issue like Anthony Watts did and who came to the issue like I did, which was, wait a minute, what? It's a profit game. I had no idea. Industry working with the Greens, can they do that? That's a Steve Martin reference there. It's a profit deal. Yeah. But yeah, I've talked to lots of skeptics and it seems very typical that they started out as casual believers and then looked into the evidence. Very common that they were believers first, then unbelievers. Longboard is a great example. Yeah. And he's been treated so awfully. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Physical assault is too much. All right. You can shout people down and cough when they're speaking, but. He was a sign. These guys are, I'll tell you one other sign. University of North Carolina, Charlotte, gave a talk to a student club there. And the faculty advisor to the environmental club came and just, he behaved like a jackass to the point the kids came up to me afterward and apologized for their faculty advisors. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we know where it's coming from. This is, this erosion of the willingness to engage in, we must destroy our democracy to save it and so on. This was coming from faculty, I think, all along. And that example stood out. Faculty advisor, some students, one student told me he would be penalized because the teacher told him, oh, you're that Chris Horner guy. So again, we didn't see it coming. And only in thinking aloud in hindsight, I'm realizing, yeah, it's the indoctrination. It's coming from faculty. Yeah. Okay. And I, I don't know, has it gotten worse because of faculty 
or is it? Yeah, I don't know how it is on campus right now, but uh, I just talked to Chris Marks last week and actually he said as a climate skeptic on campus, it hasn't been, his experience hasn't been so bad. So I was glad to hear that, but that's the only data point I have on that one. This is absolutely gold. So thank you so much for doing this. And then I would like to find out what your take is on the Supreme Court decision from last week. I don't understand it very well, but I bet you do. So it was, that was extremely important, not just for this issue, I'd say particularly for this issue, but it was a broad, it was an important administrative law ruling. Previously, the court had said that it hadn't really tackled it head on, but it said Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. So when you suddenly discover after your legislation keeps getting defeated, and John Roberts' majority opinion in this case pointed out, we can't help but notice that you're trying to do through claimed administrative authority you just found between the couch cushions, what you'd been asking Congress to give you authority for years. And I'm just, that's good. That right there isn't that you threw it in as we can't help but notice that you keep getting denied this. And now you say, oh, but I've got the authority anyway. And Neil Gorsuch's concurrence, by the way, is glorious. He says, I understand executives getting impatient and deciding when frustrated that they have a pen and a phone authority uh -huh. okay. and quoted somebody else about how if Congress won't act, and the same thing was still President Obama, if Congress won't act, I will. And he's saying, that's not how any of this works. So you probably ought to be a little less abusive when you say you're going to do, as they also quoted, Biden chief of staff, Ron Klain, called one of their regulatory overreaches a workaround. What are you working around? In fact, the law doesn't know. <laughs> and so there was the, this was the third in a series of rulings that culminated, I think, with this saying, major questions doctrine, all right? If you're proclaiming some authority to, in this case, as the Environmental Protection Agency claim, you were the agency. You can't point to it, but you'll notice somebody sees it. You were the agency that Congress gave the authority to decide how Americans can get their edge. And you find that in a statute called the Clean Air Act in a provision that's only been used a handful of times, oddly, never to retool the economy, which actually doesn't actually give you the torque. We're going to take a hard look. And it was the third such opinion. The first was, I may get the order wrong, the nationwide moratoria on evictions. Okay. And some agency... Was it CDC said, I think it was the Centers for Disease Control became the nation's landlord. Okay, said, yeah. Nationwide moratorium on evictions. And the court said, there's absolutely no indication that you have this authority. I'm from the government, isn't actually an argument. And then OSHA said, mask, mask mandate, which is what Ron Klain called the workaround. And they slacked out of the time. The appellate court judge said, this phrase you use, workaround. I'm really proving too much here. All of you probably ought to just shut up. <laughs> if you're planning on claiming that you're game, stop sending all these signals that then I'll just claim I'm game. And so this was in the name of giving EPA the authority to do what it's long wanted to do, has always been denied the authority to do by Congress. It has come up several times, and that is to become a decarbonization agency. It isn't. Okay. Agencies are executive agencies. And in that word, we find the root of what they're supposed to do, execute authorities given to them by Congress. And we've got a must-yield document written by all these bad guys that lays it out really nicely. It's a rule book. There's interpretation around the edges. And yeah, they didn't see, they didn't see an assault rifle, 
and they didn't see the internet. So we, we interpret. They also didn't see this. They didn't see the environmental protection agency, which Richard Nixon conjured up in an, mm. an executive memo, suddenly becoming a national economic regulatory agency. So it was a, it was a, it was a long path to get here. President Obama has been out about this for a long time. And the rule that the court struck down was replaced by President Trump years ago. Okay. But there was this idea for very good reason that possibly President Biden was just going to try to withdraw the Trump rule and reinstate the Obama rule. That's oversimplified. Okay. But because that chance remained, the court said, I'm, there is still an actual case of controversy and we're going to hear this. You've seen this done by the left typically very often where when it looks like they're about to get their rear end handed to them, they'll quickly repeal the law. There's nothing for you to heed, but took it away. Okay. And courts are wising up recently. They say, yeah, you've come before me before and you keep saying, yeah, but I don't see anything. It's in your left hand behind your back. I see okay. it. And the minute you walk out of this room, you might just put it back on the table. So we're going to hear the case. This was not unlike them. Okay. So it said the word carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases are something EPA has been given the authority to address. We must do something or you can do something. I'll reorganize the economy. That's something. Okay. You need authority. You didn't point me to the authority. So now it goes back and the Trump rules, they withdrew it, but now they want to replace it and they're going to try to replace it. Despite what Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer are agreeing to and may actually enact, and there is a provision in there in the spending orgy to try to give EPA something like $42 million to keep cooking up these regulations. That's not authority. That's just, here's a bag of money, a big bag of money, other people's money to keep working on these things through all these provisions in the law that might mention it or possibly give you authority. But the question always going to come down to, but can you do it? So the Biden administration is going to try to regulate greenhouse gases again. They're doing it through auto regs. They're doing it through Department of Energy. They're doing it through coercion. They're doing it through crowding people out, through subsidies. It's a whole of government approach, and that's their phrase. But this was the big one. This was, can the EPA just coerce, I won't say force, coerce you onto this stuff that things that work some of the time don't replace things that work all the time. And that's this fatal flaw in this yes. thing. I'm going to... I'm going to replace this with that, but that doesn't replace this. It's an expensive redundancy. You still need the stuff that works all the time. Germany's on line one. You still need the stuff that works all the time yes, yeah. to back up your sun catchers and your pinwheels. You still need the stuff that works all the time. If you, as the public deep down does want the lights to be on all the time, hospitals to be running all the time, to not be rationing. You can add these things and we are doing it and it's destabilizing the grid. And there seems little doubt about that. We're now facing threats of blackouts, just like in the winter, we had threats of blackouts and it wasn't also failed. It was your destabilizing system with things that no one really expected when the winter, they said no one really expected the windmills to work during the winter. So how we didn't fail. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. But we still need the stuff that works there. Yeah. Uh -huh. And we need a little more because things always happen and there will be maintenance. Like France got all these nukes down for maintenance. Bad time. You need a lot of additional capacity because things happen, but particularly when you add these redundancies and you have to balance them. So 
EPA was just trying to force that through brute regulatory force. And they'd never been given the authority. That's the very long meandering. The court shut it down. Now what? Okay. And all I can say is personnel are policy. The guy who designed dominantly, I told you how the clean power plan really came about. It was the guy with the Yahoo account working with a clean air act group, forget their name. They were based out of Maine. And, uh, but the guy in charge is named Joe Goffman. He was okay. the nominal architect, the guy who did the whiteboard video for Obama Biden. Okay. And then he went to Harvard where he was lauded as the law whisperer. What did that mean? He teaches old laws to learn new tricks. Okay. That's why he was just brought into EPA to regulate greenhouse gases. What did the Supreme Court just say? You don't teach old laws new tricks okay. when those tricks are big. Like, we'll defer to you if you say, it's, this is, they didn't say this, but if you're tweaking something or you're adapting to a technological advance, and again, windmills are from the 80s, 1880s, okay. But when you're claiming this big new body of authority, that's why Mr. Goffman's there. And there's, I'll give you my, a particular hobby horse of mine right now. We filed the, I filed a, an amicus brief on behalf of a group, energy policy advocates in the DC circuit on this. Using state freedom of information act laws. We found that Joe Goffman was a consigliere to these progressive state AGs. Okay. And when New York would want to find a back door to impose the greenhouse gas agenda. They call it the law whisperer, and we know this. And then he was brought in house to do it, but we got his ethics documents and nowhere does he mention that relationship with these AGs. Okay. We think he should have in part because he should recuse himself from this. Unfortunately, he didn't recuse because he didn't mention it. And he's the guy in charge of deciding whether he was right up when he was the other guy. It's a long story, but that's actually how the Obama administration did this too. They brought in okay. an outside activist at EPA to decide if she'd been right all along when she was litigating this Massachusetts versus EPA okay. by four monstrosity that led us to this situation. So Joe Goffman's in charge. He's got a Senate vote coming up. It was just delayed because they couldn't get all the Democrats there, which indicates the Republicans aren't going to help them out with this one. So Goffman's a problematic nominee because he was consulting with and is the guy who has to decide whether EPA should settle with, just think sue and settle, Okay, a bunch of progressive AGs who sued EPA saying they should do this. Okay. Just picture if you and I, you want to do something and you ask me if it's how to do it and I give you the solution and then I go into the DeSantis administration and you sue the DeSantis administration to do it. And I go more in sorrow than anger. I think Mr. Nelson's right. That's what's going on here. Okay. And so it's odd, but it's documented in emails and these AGs led by New York filed suit the day before Biden's inauguration in state of New York at all versus EPA. So Trump couldn't even answer the lawsuit. There was okay. this one. It was very clever. It had been designed months before, but they waited until the day before he's session. Okay. So there's no way Trump's EPA could answer it. And now Joe Biden's EPA, led by the guy who came up with the idea, keeps striking his chin, wondering if they, if maybe these AGs have a point. It should never have gotten to this. This is you should not have the person in charge who was involved in deciding how to get these schemes rolling. He should recuse himself 
I'll just, there's a great, the Wall Street Journal distilled our 25 page brief in a brilliant 800 word editorial called Biden's Backdoor Climate Plan. Okay. Last March, but man, did they nail it. Okay. They laid it out. So by hook or by crook, I'm sure you didn't think they were going to give up and they're not going to give up. And I suspect the plan is to not go through the front door. The plan is to go through the back door, which the Supreme Court just said, we're getting a little tired of you going through the back door. Okay. All right. There wasn't even a back door. You got out of chainsaw and said, I came in through this hole and we're saying you can't do that. And they're going to impose the global warming agenda 3PA through an ozone standard. Argument is warming causes ground level ozone. CO2 causes warm. Therefore, you can meet your ozone standard by reducing CO2. They can't get the Clean Air Act to, to be a CO2 reduction mechanism. So they're bootstrapping it in, going through the back door, and they're saying, you can reduce ozone or because I'll say you're reducing ozone if you impose greenhouse gas regulations. Will accept your state plan. Again, this is, it's extraordinarily complex. It's also convoluted. I'm oversimplifying, but that's the plan. And I just, I say the journal did a better job in 800 words than we did in 25 pages, but we had emails to cite and lots of things where it was very clever and it was a long march mentality, which the Greens definitely have. They reached out to former Obama Biden people who put them in touch with the network of former EPA people who said, here's how we think you can do it. And instead of conducting science, they said, the IPCC is going to come out with a new report just adopted as yours. Sounds familiar. Okay. They laid it out in a PowerPoint. And then the guy who was behind this went in-house to decide whether or not this was a good idea. I think I know the answer, but they won't tell the court. This is probably too inside already, but I think they've been waiting to do this until they found out how the Supreme Court ruled. Okay. Right. And now that they know they lost... I think you'll see this pretty soon happen. I hope I'm wrong, but I do think, here's why I hope I'm wrong. They can't get away with this now. After West Virginia versus EPA, the court will not accept this. Okay. I think the DC circuit might accept it. You can Google Obama court packing DC circuit if you want, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. I do think the DC circuit will accept it, but the Supreme Court quite clearly will not. And again, I recommend they all get food tasters and car starters, but this Supreme Court will not. Okay. The problem is we've seen with the EPA before, Obama's EPA, they crushed a lot of communities, Appalachia and other energy communities, principally gold communities, by imposing regulations that 18 months later they lost. But companies making 40-year long-term investment decisions were like, I can't keep living this way. And so EPA got its result. The activists, the political appointees of EPA got their result with various Obama rules that the Supreme Court ultimately tossed out because once again, you didn't have the authority to do this. Okay. And so you can win by losing. And I, I say this with some despair. I think they know that and that's behind proposing some of these fairly outlandish ideas because the regulated world has to live under this. And when a rule's put in place and they, we've got 18 months and we need to make decisions now, they make decisions based on what's in place. And we've seen a lot of terrible human consequences from almost exactly this. Again, it was Obama Environmental Protection Agency rules. They had a very bad record on these at the Supreme Court. 
but they still got their way socially and economically. Okay. They won. They forced devastation on a lot of communities, even though they were proved in the end to have done this improperly. That's okay. That's where you start getting, we're not having as much fun with this and starting to get a little angry. And this is, it's not a game. There are serious human consequences to all of this. Absolutely. Energy poverty, energy scarcity. This is an energy scarcity agenda. Energy poverty is real. You're killing people, not computer models in 2100. You're killing people. Document in the UK, Germany, wherever this agenda is put in place. Document. They call it fuel poverty. The Guardian will cover it. They'll talk about the spike in deaths, estimated 2,500, but get 12,500 excess winter deaths. Then it goes to 30, then it goes to 40,000. As these rules are further metastasizing throughout their system. And at no point do they say, maybe this was not yet ready to serve. Instead, it's clearly we don't have enough money for insulation. That's why all these seniors are dying of hypothermia. No, you're pricing energy out of their reach. You knew you were doing this. Now they're dying a lot. The most vulnerable. Why are they the most vulnerable? Because they don't have anybody. You can see there are these heartbreaking stories. Why did social services leave these seniors to die? Is one of them I've used. Okay, they didn't have family to check on it. Those are the people these policies kill. And all we hear from the people who promoted them as they thunder about this increase in fuel poverty deaths is you're not spending enough on insulation. Now, wait a minute. Your price is this, yeah. this should not be that hard. That's I'm trying to remember if, if I think it was Joe Del Joe, right? Yes. Yeah. Joe introduced me to the book, why prophecies fail. The term cognitive dissonance was invented. There's a, there have always been doomsday cults, right? This just happens to be one of them. Yes. And an author in the fifties followed a Chicago housewife who had a cult. They were expecting the spaceship to land and it didn't. And with all these cults, they ran inside, redid their numbers and came out saying, don't worry, we're all going to die. And, oh, I forgot to carry the one. We're all right. mm -hmm. And they came up with the term Leon Festinger, I think was the author's name, cognitive dissonance. It takes cognitive or not the dissonance involved in reporting on these deaths and completely missing what's going on is genre. Do you think it's coming to a head now, though, when we're seeing what's going on in Sri Lanka and the Netherlands as the, uh, they're uh, choking off their supplies of food and fuel? It's becoming all too real, I think, right now, more than ever in the last 20 years. Seems like it to me. Those are other people. Yes. Yeah. Environmental is always about other people. Whenever you hear them say, people need to this, people need, it, they're talking about other people. Other people, there are too many other people. But they don't say that. Too many people on this planet. All right, go first. After you. No, I show some leadership, damn it. So all these other people, faraway places of whom mm -hmm. we know very little. Netherlands isn't that far away. And that does, it does seem to be spreading, but I'll tell you just as an example, my wife's from Denmark. She showed me a Danish headline three days ago. If the elections were held in three weeks, what's your, what would you vote on? First was healthcare. It is state run health. Second is climate. Really? Okay. Third is the economy. Denmark's a very wealthy country, so naturally climate's up. And you think after all this, so I don't know, I have my moments of optimism that energy poverty, blackouts, what's going on in Europe. And I understand the tremendous investment to say, well, see, this just shows you we need to get off fossil fuels. No, it shows you need to not be dependent upon 
possibly malignant actors, let's say we're about to be with solar and wind in China, rare earths, and a lot more. You need to not do stupid things like that, like we warned about with Germany for years, also Germany, but I mean, we've seen, Obama gave a speech over and over about, look at Spain. If you want to know how this is going to work out, look at Spain. No, it's way not. And so we stopped giving that speech. And he said, then that got busted as you can only sell so many windmills to so many people and you still need to at least bring the stuff in from the fields to burn because you want the lights on. I saw one report that said that we seem unable to learn. I'm sorry to interrupt. So I don't know. I want to be optimistic, but. Okay. I was just going to say, I saw one report that said that firewood that would go for 90 euros in Germany recently was like 500 euros because people are terrified they're not going to be able to heat their houses this winter if there's not enough natural gas. So I don't know, could be a cold winter over there. I Look, if not now, when? With all of this, we certainly ought to learn the lesson. But if you read the general narrative, it just shows you need to get off fossil fuels. That's not what this shows at all. It's not. I think I've kept you long enough, but do you have you have more that you'd like to say? I'd stay as long as you want if you have more that you'd like to say. Otherwise, well, I'll leave some for the next time, maybe. I suppose we leave some for the next time. I just, yeah, I'm getting into, I think I'm preparing to rant. If I haven't, raise your hand if you think I already have. But yeah, you get into the social consequences of this. And I just, that's when we're no longer, we were going to have some fun. We had some fun. But the consequences are so serious. But again, it's other people. And again, who's dying from fuel poverty? It's people who didn't have families there to advocate for them, to who are now protesting, why did mom die? So we're not, in, they've invented a term in Germany. I used to, about uh, their energy poverty. This was before the Ukraine invasion related rationing. They already had energy poverty, but the Spiegel article, Spiegel. What, what, how electricity became a luxury good in Germany. Okay. We've been an awful lot. We have no reason not to know where this is going. They have told us in the, my first book, the politically correct guide, you just run down the list of things the proponents of this has said, have said, why should I not believe that's really what's going on? Mm -hmm. Alex Epstein, thank God for him. He nails yeah. the anti-humanist yeah. approach. I was pointing out, you just, I believe that's all. I believe what they're saying. People, other people are pollution. Okay. There's just enough of me. Way too many. Yeah. Very racist. Of course. Yeah. The, I think it was the Sri Lankan, the horrible quote about that's as good a way to get rid of them as any about the uh, malarial. Okay. There's just a whole litany about humans are a cancer. Other humans are a cancer and people like Maurice Strong who happen to be rich made their money off oil okay. happened to be rich saying I'm aboard, pull up the ladder. Yeah. You don't hear poor people saying, yeah, yeah, we really need to, we really need to ration energy. I, I still want someone to go to Haiti and say, do the document. Are you all going to join the, the Paris climate treaty or are you going to make some commitments in Paris too? Real ones, not just promises to have a capacity building committee in return for a lot of money, which is what these agreements do. Now we want, we've learned with China. You promise that you're next. Now is next. And they always say, next time. No, this is still historic. No, it's a historic liability. It's not ours. Even though you and I have been at this a long time, they always said we're next time. Right now, yeah. you, next time. Yes. Yeah. It's always next time. I'll always glad to, gladly pay you 
choose for uh, some energy rationing in your country today. Well, ask, ask 80, are you going to do, you can ration energy? Or you want to agree to this stuff's killing the planet with, no matter who uses it? And the proper response would be food, fuel, medicine, shelter. I've got my hierarchy of needs here. If I get rich, I'm going to start regulating the parts per thousand. If I get rich, I'm going to regulate the parts. If I get really rich, I'm going to pretend I can control the weather. But for now, I've got needs and you're talking about, you're talking about intentionally imposed depression, poverty, and we're living that. So we're a little, you can sell that to rich guys. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this is a lot. There's a lot of effort to rebrand this yeah. as a, as an effort that it isn't. This is a wealthy white Western obsession. Absolutely. I don't know if you saw it. There was just an interview that came out with Jordan Peterson and Michael Yan. It was, uh, just came out and Michael Yan has been traveling all around and he thinks that there's going to be a lot of starvation worldwide in the next year or two. He blames a lot of it on the green utopia, cracking down on the farmers and on the fuel. And the poor people are going to obviously get hurt the worst. If you're, he says the people that are right on the edge, if food becomes twice as expensive and fuel becomes way more expensive, those people are going to really be struggling. I hope he's not right, but he makes a good case that starvation's coming. I don't know. I hope not. It seems like it. I saw some warnings from EU bureaucrats who are fully invested in the agenda. This was a defensive one. It wasn't saying hold enough, standing thwart of this madness. They were saying, we, this is going to, if this boomerangs, the societal unrest that this is going to generate will in the end be a net loss for our agenda. So we need to pump the brakes. It was not okay. as it first read the taken out of context. He was just saying, stop the insanity. He wasn't, he was saying. As a matter of self-preservation for our agenda, we need to just slow it down a bit because no. there is this, I'm disclosing with this, consider the utter recklessness of not having, of believing you can replace things that work all the time with things that work some of the time by just yelling batteries and, and walking on. Yes. And yeah. Ignoring experience time again. And then o Obama gives these speeches pointing to Spain and Germany over and over and a half. Yeah. He gets busted and he just stops giving the speech. Yeah. He still keeps pushing the policies. At some point, I brought in some European parliamentarians. They weren't from the EU parliament. They were from Italy. To a congressman from Virginia's office early in the Obama administration to explain what was going on with their greenhouse gas rationing scheme. And they began explaining. They were parliamentarians who've done this. And now they're saying, look, this is a, we want you to not go down this road. This turns out to be, you got to watch it. And this congressman who was defeated that next election held up his hand. It was the most imperious, arrogant. He goes, wait, he goes, that enough. He goes, it's too soon. It's too soon for you to be saying this because it was the opposite of confirmation bias. He didn't want to hear it. If all those red arrows were green arrows, it wouldn't have been too soon. He's like saying, oh, we met our Kyoto target 30 years earlier. No, I know. Cause he, no, 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 no. We met it. So there has been the recklessness of the policymaking class here. I don't want to be them when everybody, we need Nuremberg style trials and everybody's a climate criminal, but this really is borderline criminal negligence. How do you ignore, you just glibly say it will do this and we're ready to do that. And you're greedy. You'll figure it out is probably the best way to consider what they're saying. When yeah. again, there are physics, there, there are issues here. You're trying, you can't just yell batteries and walk on. People are dying. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. So CO2 induced bad weather is not going to kill anybody, but bad climate policy will kill people. I think much more to fear from climate yeah. policy. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah. Again, thank you so much for being on here. Where else can the listeners find you on Twitter? Any other websites they should go to, or they should go to Amazon and get your books, I'm sure. Red Hot Lies is one I'm listening to right now. I'm going to be tweeting out excerpts from it because there's tons of good stuff in there. I love that book. I really do. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, Chris underscore C underscore Warner on Twitter. A lot of what I talked about is up at, regarding the litigation, is up at govoversight.org. Okay, all right. And climatelitigationwatch.org. Both are, whether it's the Facebook, the Facebook seeking the fact checkers or the finding out suing attorneys general and discerning how in the world you can commandeer a law enforcement agency because you're a really big donor. Okay. Uh, it's pretty well laid out there. Okay. And then I could put those links in the show notes. I'll, I'll get those up so people can click on them maybe so they don't have to Google for them. But okay. anyway, thanks a ton. And I hope to uh, see you again on this podcast sometime later. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. Bye.